This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, my name is Ian Drake, and we are at the New Books Network, and we are joined today by Jonathan W. White, an associate professor of American studies at Christopher Newport University in Virginia. He is the author or editor of 13 books and more than 100 articles, essays, and reviews about the Civil War. His latest publications are three books, two of which were published last year in 2021, one entitled My Work Among the Freedmen, The Civil War and Reconstruction Letters of Harriet M. Buss, and he co-edited that book with uh, Lydia Davis, and another publication entitled To Address You as My Friend, African-Americans' Letters to Abraham Lincoln. His latest book, and the one we'll be discussing today, is entitled A House Built by Slaves, African-American Visitors to the Lincoln White House. And uh, John, I want to welcome you back to the New Books Network. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. So I was um, struck by the subject matter on the one hand, it sounds very narrow, like a kind of a micro history of just one set of visitors to the White House, which, of course, can only occur in that one um, term that Lincoln had back in the 18, early 1860s. Uh, but on the other hand, this seems also to be a, a rather broad topic, uh, reflective of aspects of the sociology of the time. Uh, so explain why you chose this topic and why you thought it was important to write a whole book about it. Well, the you mentioned my one book that came out in October, The Letters to Lincoln. And I actually started that book as a the subtitle was the working subtitle was something like African American Correspondence and Conversations with Abraham Lincoln. And I wanted to pull together not only the letters that people were writing to Lincoln, but also the many conversations that he had with black visitors. And after a while, I realized it was just too much for one book. I found 125 letters from African-Americans to Lincoln and hundreds of African-Americans visited the White House during the Civil War, either for private meetings with Lincoln or at public receptions. And so at some point a couple of years ago, I realized that I needed to break it apart and make it two separate books. And so UNC Press published the letters last fall, and then Roman and Littlefield is publishing the the narrative of the visitors this spring. And I, we should also mention this book is going to be uh, officially released on February 12th. Is that right? That's right. Lincoln's birthday. So the timing's perfect. So... Um, and in my initial question, I was asking about how this is narrow versus broad. So can you ex- explain your thoughts on that? Sure. Yeah. I mean, issues of race in American history are of, you know, central to the national discourse right now. 
And so on the one hand, it is a very narrow topic. I'm looking at a four-year period for the most part and Lincoln meeting with a particular constituency. So it's narrow in that sense. But the questions that I think the book raises are, are really large ones and they're perennial questions in American history. And what, what place does race have in our national discourse? What role do African-Americans play in our history? How did African-Americans influence Lincoln's thinking as he was going through the war? And so I think that the book makes a lot of new contributions in our thinking on these sort of things. On the one hand, you know, we know the story of emancipation very well. It's been debated since the Civil War itself. On the other hand, I think that putting Black visits to the White House changes the way we view that story. And so we can see how African-Americans are pushing Lincoln in certain directions, and he's willing to listen. Um, one of the stories that I love in the book has to do with Robert Smalls. So he is a very famous uh, slave in Charleston, South Carolina, who steals a Confederate ship called the Planter in May of 1862. And he sails it out to the Union blockading vessels and turns it over to the Union blockade. And he becomes a national hero for doing this. Lincoln actually signs a law on May 30th, 1862, giving Smalls uh, salvage money for having captured this Confederate ship. Well, at that point in the war, Lincoln opposed allowing black men to fight in the Union Army. But Smalls goes to Washington, D.C., and he meets with Lincoln. And Smalls makes the case that black men should be allowed to fight. And here you have Lincoln meeting with a man who has fought to earn his own freedom and to secure not only his own freedom, but his wife and his children and about a dozen other people who were aboard that ship with him. And Lincoln actually gives a, a letter to Smalls, or the War Department, I should say, gives a letter to Smalls that he takes back to South Carolina authorizing the enlistment of black soldiers. And so this is a tangible moment where a meeting with a black visitor at the White House changed the trajectory of the war. Prior to this meeting in August of 62, Lincoln opposes arming black men. After the meeting, he supports it. And that's so much so that by the time the Emancipation Proclamation comes around on January 1st, 1863, that executive order explicitly authorizes the arming of black soldiers. And uh, that's one example of a number in the book where I think Lincoln and his black visitors have a real give and take relationship they learn from each other. They listen to each other. In almost every instance, they treat one another with absolute respect and cordiality. Now, today, the president's schedule uh, in 2022, when we're recording this on uh, February 1st of 2022, uh, today, the president's schedule is uh, extensively detailed and documented in the Lincoln White House uh were the visits always well documented so that we definitely know who was present and when they showed up? Because you had mentioned uh, in the book that uh, sometimes these are unannounced people, that uh, visitors that come to the White House. So do we always know uh, who, in fact, Lincoln met with? We don't. And that's the thing that made this book very difficult. So Today, it's really hard to gain access to the president. But in Lincoln's era, he held office hours. So just like you and I hold office hours where students can come in and talk to us about anything they want, the president did that. 
And people would start lining up early in the morning and there was an anteroom outside of his office. His office is now the Lincoln bedroom, but there was a room outside of there that his secretary sat in and they would screen people coming in and then a line would form and it would often go all the way down the stairs of the White House from that anteroom down the stairs and people would just wait for hours until they got their turn. And they could go in and talk to Lincoln about just about anything they wanted to. So some would come in and say, hey, do you know, I gave a speech in Xenia, Ohio that made you president. Will you make me the postmaster of my town? Or I want to advocate for this or that. And what ends up happening for the most part early in the war, it's only white people who go and meet with the president. But beginning in April or as early as April of 1862, black people also begin making appointments or getting in that line to meet with the president. And they can then go in and talk about whatever they want with him. Now, I've been able to pull together the stories of dozens of meetings between Lincoln and black visitors. Some of them were men and women who just waited in line and then went and talked to him. Some of them were people who had connections. And so they were able to use those connections to set up an appointment to go and meet with Lincoln. And I've pulled together as many stories as I could. Now, I found them in newspapers and letters and diaries and speeches, wherever people talked about meeting with Lincoln, I was looking for those sources and would then try to do further research to figure out the story and be able to tell it as fully as I could. But I can tell you that I know there are a lot of people whose stories have just slipped through the cracks. And to give one example, on October 29th, 1864, Sojourner Truth met with Lincoln. And there are a number of primary sources from 1864 that recount her meeting with Lincoln in great detail. In one or two of those sources, Sojourner Truth and the people who were with her recounted that there were two black women who met with Lincoln before Truth did. And so while Truth was sitting there waiting for her turn, these other two women are meeting with Lincoln. We don't know their names. We don't know the details of their visit. It's completely lost to history other than a few throwaway sentences in these other accounts. And I would guess that there are dozens of accounts like that where people who are completely forgotten today met with Lincoln and there was just no record kept. One aspect of these meetings that I was particularly intrigued by, and I know it was notable to you, um, is the social meaning of certain actions. It reminded me of the British novelist L.P. Hartley famously said, the past is a foreign country. They do things differently there. And that quote came to mind when I was reading about the significance and importance that we might not attribute to this gesture today, but the notion of the handshake and the physical inter interlacing of hands. Can you explain that? Yeah. One of the things that I was so intrigued by is that in every meeting I found with Lincoln, that he shook hands with his black visitors. And in a number of the meetings, the black visitors later remark on how eagerly Lincoln shook their hands or how cordially he was. This was something that I think for many of them, they were not expecting. You would not find many white people being willing to shake the hand of an African-American in that era. And yet Lincoln did it for black men and women. And to put this in context, I'll tell 
two very quick stories of people who met with Lincoln, who met with other reformers, because we would often think, well, you know, well, Lincoln's an anti-slavery guy. Of course, he's going to treat black people with respect. And the reality is that many abolitionists did not. So Horace Greeley ran for president in 1872. And I found an account where he's touring Pennsylvania as he's in this presidential campaign and a group of African-American men go up to him and they try to shake his hand and he very ostentatiously refuses to shake their hands. And Greeley's this guy who we would think of all people, wouldn't he be welcoming? And he wasn't. He's reflective of, I think, of the prejudice that exists even among many abolitionists and reformers in that era. Another one that I'll, I'll give has to do with a man named Paschal Randolph. Paschal Randolph was a spiritualist and something called a sex magician. And I, I should confess, I haven't quite figured out what that is. If I had, I think I would have a New York Times bestseller on my hands. But Paschal Randolph uh, had grown up in the slums as an orphan at Five Points in Manhattan. And he becomes a very prominent figure in the Civil War era, writes several books about sex magic and ancient natural history and so forth. And during the war, he goes and meets with a very famous abolitionist named Francis Shaw. And Shaw is famous today as the father of Robert Gould Shaw. Robert Gould Shaw is the colonel of the 54th Massachusetts, the black regiment featured in the movie Glory, who dies in battle leading his men at Battery Wagner. And so this this African-American goes to meet with Shaw's father and Shaw's father is in charge of an organization that's there to help the freed people. And he walks into the office of uh, Francis Shaw and Shaw's father waves him out and says, you know, come back when I'm ready for you very rudely. And Paschal Randolph concludes from this that the only reason he was treated this rudely was because of the color of his skin. Well, Randolph also met with Lincoln and had a completely different experience. And he met with Lincoln and Lincoln treated him cordially. And Randolph had such a good experience meeting with Lincoln that Randolph then dedicated a book he published in 1863 to Lincoln out of gratitude for all Lincoln had done in issuing the Emancipation Proclamation. And so I think it's just really telling that the president of the United States treats people of all uh, races and, you know, whether male or female with respect and dignity. And that was not the norm for that era. This is a bit beyond uh, the scope of your study, but I'm curious if you have any idea of uh, the degree and depth to which Lincoln, prior to coming into the White House as president, interacted with African-Americans? Do we have any sense of that, how frequently he would have encountered them? Yeah, there was an article published, uh, I think about 1999, in the Journal of the Abraham Lincoln Association by a historian and lawyer in Springfield, Illinois, named Richard Hart. And Hart shows that Lincoln lived in what we today would call an integrated neighborhood. That Now, the, the, popula the, the black population of Springfield was small, but there were black families scattered around Lincoln's home at, at 8th and Jackson Streets in Springfield. And Lincoln would have interacted with African-Americans on a fairly regular basis. One of his closest friends 
uh, that may be a little bit of an overstatement, but was a barber in Springfield named William Fleurville, who was a Haitian immigrant. Lincoln had black servants who worked in his home. He had black law clients that he represented as a lawyer. It was a small part of his practice, but he was representing African-Americans. And so he grew up primarily surrounded by white people, but he certainly was having experiences interacting with African-Americans in Springfield. That's going to then really change dramatically when he gets to Washington, where there's a much larger black population and he's interacting with many more African-Americans than he did in Springfield. But it wasn't an entirely new experience for him as president. So for the visitors that you document in the book, um, there are certain types of visitors among these African-Americans. Um, on the one hand, there are people that are in the military or want to be in the military, the soldiers. Uh, can you talk about the experiences with them? Yeah. So after Lincoln authorizes black men to join the army, one of the major issues is that those soldiers are not given full equality. So they have a much lower pay. Instead of receiving $13 a month like a white soldier does, they receive only $10 a month. And then they have an additional $3 deducted as a as a uh, clothing allowance. And so black men enlist expecting to be paid seven or $13. And instead they're getting $7 a month. And so Frederick Douglass meets with Lincoln in August of 1863 to argue that black men should be given equality. And not only that, but the Confederate government pledged to either enslave or execute any black soldiers who were captured on the battlefield, treating them as slaves in insurrection. And so Douglas also was calling on Lincoln to protect black soldiers from that sort of unfair massacre and calling for retaliation. Lincoln told Douglas that slaves who were gaining freedom should consider freedom in in, in a sense as part of their pay and that eventually they would get full equal pay, but it wasn't going to happen yet. There was a lot of white prejudice that just wouldn't allow for black people to receive the same pay as white soldiers. And Douglas was not fully satisfied with that answer, as you might expect. But he went away with a sense that Lincoln was taking these issues seriously. By June of 1864, black soldiers who had been free before the war are given equal pay. And by 1865, all black soldiers are given equal pay. So I think there was, you know, Douglas was bringing this issue to Lincoln's mind and it would eventually change for the better. On the issue of retaliation, Lincoln issued an order saying he would retaliate against Confederates who massacred black soldiers or re-enslaved them. But the problem was Lincoln did not like the idea of randomly selecting people to retaliate against people who hadn't committed the original sin. And so even though he issued this order of retaliation, he never really acted upon it. There were a number of black men who come to the White House to talk about recruitment, and Lincoln in Washington, D.C. is encouraging the recruitment of black soldiers in the spring and summer of 1863 in Washington. And um, he, he comes to see that black soldiers are going to be essential to winning the war, that they, by arming them, they weaken the Confederacy by taking slaves away from the Confederate society, and then arming them to fight against the Confederacy. And so it's sort of a double-edged sword to be wielded against the the rebellion. 
So uh, you mentioned Frederick Douglass and his interest in the uh, soldier issue. Frederick Douglass himself, uh, well-known, one of the best-known um, African-Americans from the 19th century who is an advocate for civil rights for African-Americans. Can you kind of give us a uh, understanding of how he conceived of Lincoln um, both in terms of his impressions of him. It's my sense that Douglas had certain impressions of him before he met him uh, or about what he thought he would be like, but then had impressions of him once he in fact con- uh, had connections with him. Is that- yeah. Douglas was very critical of Lincoln early in the war. When Douglas read Lincoln's first inaugural address, he was outraged because Lincoln said he would carry out and execute the fugitive slave law of 1850. And from Douglas's perspective, that law was unconstitutional and should not be, should not be enforced. And so he actually in 1860 and 61 calls Lincoln abolitionism's worst enemy and the South's greatest slave hound, which is pretty remarkable to think about. But Douglas meets with Lincoln in 63. As I mentioned, he meets with him again in August of 64. And then they meet again after Lincoln's second inauguration in March of 65. And these meetings transform the way Douglas thinks about the president. So he goes on, he comes to see that Lincoln really does have a genuine concern for African-Americans. He doesn't always agree with what Lincoln says, but he sees Lincoln as the best hope for putting down the rebellion and bringing about freedom for the enslaved. The meeting in August of 1864, I think, is one of the most remarkable moments in American history, to be quite frank. Lincoln was convinced that he would lose re-election. And so he calls Frederick Douglass to come to the White House and he says, essentially, I know I'm going to lose this election. We need to do everything we can to free as many slaves as possible before I'm out of office, because once I'm out, the Democrat who beats me, George McClellan, is going to rescind the Emancipation Proclamation. And so the two men actually hatch a plan, kind of like John Brown, where they think, okay, let's send bands of scouts into the Confederacy and tell the slaves, run away now while you can before Lincoln's out of office. And Douglas reflected on this later. And Douglas thought about it. And from Doug, what Douglas realized was that this plan had nothing to do with military necessity. When we talk about emancipation, we often think, well, Lincoln just did it to, to win the war. He only did it for the Union. He didn't do it because he had a moral conviction to end slavery. But Douglas saw in Lincoln that there was a deep moral conviction here. Going into the South and telling the slaves, run away now before Lincoln's out of office had nothing to do with winning the war. It had everything to do with with making freedom as broad and as powerful and as possible. And so this this really changed the way Douglas thought about Lincoln. And Douglas gave speeches where he talked about it and he talked about Lincoln. He talked about how Lincoln showed him respect, made no reference to the color of their skin, showed him complete equality. Douglas said, I felt big there when I was when I was with Lincoln. And um, Douglas understood that there was a great political cost to a political figure, a white figure in that era to treat a black man with respect. But Lincoln was willing to take that risk and treat him with respect and treat his other black visitors with respect, even though Democratic newspapers just howled in protest that Lincoln was doing that sort of thing. Well, that's another point you make uh, is that there these visits or some of them were reported on in the press. They were well known. They were they became 
um, targets of criticism or points of criticism re- regarding Lincoln. And it's the Democrats, not just, I mean, these are not Southerners, but these are nor- people in the North as well. And so this, does it call, do these uh, visits in addition to obviously other pressures that are on Lincoln that make him think he's going to lose the election. But do any of these visits and the criticisms that are leveled against him, do they cost him politically? I think they do. It's impossible to know for sure. There's no public opinion polling in the 19th century that we could look at in such and such time frame. How did Lincoln, how did American voters think about Lincoln on particular issues? But the reporting in the press is widespread. And one of the things we have to realize is that newspapers in that era were unabashedly partisan. So there are Republican newspapers and there are Democratic newspapers. And the Democratic newspapers are just howling in disgust as they report on these sort of meetings or as they report on the fact that Lincoln recognizes Liberia and Haiti and allows Haiti to send an ambassador to Washington, D.C. When they see this, they say Lincoln is trying to bring about social equality among the races. And I think, you know, look, most most white Americans in that era were highly racist, especially if we think about them by the standards of today. And so I can't help but think that those sort of attacks would have had a major impact on um, on how people thought about politics. You know, do you want to, do you want to vote for Lincoln if he's going to be recognizing African-Americans as social equals at the White House? And just to bring it back to Frederick Douglass, here's something that Douglass said about Lincoln. He said, he knew that he could do nothing which would call down upon him more fiercely the ribaldry of the vulgar than by showing any respect to the colored man. And yet, Lincoln did that. And Douglas said this, he said, some men there are who can face death and dangers, but have not the moral courage to contradict a prejudice or face ridicule in daring to admit, nay, in daring to invite a Negro to an audience at the White House. Mr. Lincoln did that, which he knew would be offensive to the crowd and excite the ribald, their ribaldry. It was saying to the country, this is Douglas's words, it was saying to the country, I am president of the black people as well as of the white, and I mean to respect their their rights and feelings as men and as citizens. And, you know, I've thought about that line a lot where he says, I mean to respect their rights. A few years earlier, Roger Tawney in the Dred Scott decision had said that white men or sorry, that black people have no rights, which the white man is bound to respect. And here Douglas is saying, he's alluding to that, and he's saying Lincoln recognizes and respects our rights. So after these meetings, there are, from a lot of the people that he met with, these efforts to thank him and to send him uh, essentially gifts or Mm -hmm. uh, tokens of their thanks for having met with them. Can you explain um, the significance of this and why it's important historically? Yeah, lots of people send presents to presidents, and it's happened going back to George Washington. 
African-Americans begin to do that as well during the Civil War, and Lincoln receives a number of gifts. Some show up in the mail. They're in the form of letters. I found in my book of letters, I found one where um, a former slave who is now serving in the Union Army is learning how to read and write. And so he copies out a poem from the newspapers and sends it to Lincoln, and he includes a little postscript and says, please don't laugh at it. Like He's learning how to read and write. He knows that his penmanship and grammar and so forth aren't perfect, and he really believes that the president will hold this letter, which Lincoln did, and, and read it. And it could have a visceral reaction, but he hopes Lincoln won't laugh at his little gift there. I found a woman from Natchez, Mississippi, who baked a cake that she called a liberty cake and sent it to Lincoln. But then some African-Americans brought gifts to the White House. One woman from Philadelphia made a beautiful display of wax fruit that was apparently worth about $350 in 1864 money. And she got to come to the White House and present it to Lincoln and have a really beautiful conversation with him while she's giving it to him. A group of ministers, black ministers from Baltimore, go to the White House in September of 1864 and give him an exquisite pulpit Bible, which is now at Fisk University in Nashville. And as part of my research, I got to go down there and actually look at it, which was really incredible. In another case, a black painter from Philadelphia painted battle flags for U.S. colored troop regiments, and he took a photograph of one of the flags and personally gave it to Lincoln. And I think that the giving of gifts was a way for these different people to be able to show Lincoln that they were thankful for what he had done during the Civil War. I think a lot of them recognized that emancipation obviously had not always been the primary goal of the war, but after the Emancipation Proclamation is issued, they want to show Lincoln that they're thankful for what he's doing um, in his role as president. So you are uh, centered in your scholarly research on the Civil War, but of course, Abraham Lincoln himself. And so obviously, you know a great deal about Lincoln. Does the work that you've done in this book and what you've uncovered about these particular visits from African-Americans to the White House, did it introduce you to anything new about Lincoln that you hadn't realized or understood before? Yeah, I had never realized how welcoming the White House had become for this short period of time. One of the things I discovered was that prior to the Civil War, an African-American was more likely to be bought and sold as a slave by a sitting president than to be welcomed as a guest. James Polk bought and sold at least 19 people during his presidency, and I couldn't even find close to that number of black visitors prior to 1860. And I found a newspaper editorial from 1860 or 61 during the secession crisis where the newspapers used the idea of a black visitor to the White House as a joke. No one would take it seriously. And yet within a very short period of time, the the White House color line is going to begin to break down. And that happens from 1862 to 1865 as Lincoln welcomes black people to the White House as as guests, as visitors. In at least one case, he has a black man to tea and he and Mary Lincoln sit down and, and have tea with him, which had never before happened at the White House. And sadly, shortly after his presidency, this sort of thing changes. Andrew Johnson 
does welcome black men to the White House for a brief period of time during his presidency, but he treats them very differently. And after a very tense meeting with Frederick Douglass in February of 1866, Johnson calls him the N-word and and just speaks very derisively about Douglas. By the time you get to the the Grant administration, I found an instance where there was about to be a party and one of the servants comes to Mrs. Grant and says, if black people come to the party, do we welcome them in? And she says, well, yeah, it's my party. If they come, anyone's welcome, but none come. And I think over time, what happens is African-Americans, for the most part, feel excluded from the White House. By the time you get to 1901, Teddy Roosevelt very famously invites Booker T. Washington to the White House for dinner. And Southern states just erupt in outrage and protest of this. And this the story of the hospitality of Lincoln has been completely forgotten by that point. And so that's a story that I think has been largely forgotten. It's a story I didn't know nearly in this level of detail. And I, it's one that I'm hoping that readers will find interesting and, and um, compelling. Well, there's much to find that's very interesting in this book. And it is compelling. The book is entitled A House Built by Slaves. African-American visitors to the Lincoln White House. And we've been joined today by its author, Jonathan W. White. John, thank you so much for joining us on the New Books Network. Thank you.